Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks for listening. Um, thanks for reaching out to us on the Facebook page. Thanks for reaching out to us on Twitter. Thanks for sending us email. Um, and thanks for listening. Uh, this is our first podcast of February of 2017. The goal is to do two a month here in 2017, and this is number one of two here in February. The second one in January, the last podcast that we put out a couple of weeks ago, um, was my race report on the New York City Marathon. And lots of people listened to that, and a lot of people sent me feedback on it and sent me questions on it, and I really appreciated that. Um, Whenever you do a race report, you always kind of wonder whether anybody's going to be at all interested in your own reflections of your own race. There's something about it that feels kind of self-centered um, to, to actually put race reports out there. And so it did mean a lot to me that, that people listened to it um, and interacted with it and uh, and had some things to add and to offer. Um, a few things I do want to, to, to mention here, uh, a few questions that came in that I did want to clear up or at least expand on a little bit um, since, uh, since some folks mentioned it to me. First of all, First and by far the foremost thing I want to mention um, is the unnamed friend of a friend that I mentioned last week, uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was given the New York City Marathon race report. I said that, uh, you'll recall, a friend of a friend uh, hooked me up on the local competitive team, and because of that, I was able to start literally on the starting line of the largest marathon ever run, um, and that's a pretty amazing hookup. Um, that is no small thing that this nameless friend of a friend did for me. Well, as it happens, I ran a race with that friend of a friend last weekend, and he had listened to the podcast, and he gave me a hard time uh, that I didn't actually give him a shout out and, and, and call him by name. So, Eddie Ferguson, thank you for that. I appreciate uh, your adding me to the local competitive team and, and ensuring that I got a starting place on the starting line of that 51,000 person 2016 New York City Marathon. Uh, that was a great thing. Eddie's a good guy. Uh, if you don't know him from here in the Atlanta endurance community, he's a Boston qualifier. He's a Kona qualifier. Um, all around fantastic athlete. Has the capacity to suffer like few people do. Um, and that is something that simply can't be coached. Um, I also have a particular um, uh, relationship with Eddie because he was one of the two other people that was with me on on the summer solstice of 2015 when all three of us were run over by a car. Um, so I also wanted to mention another person who ran the New York City Marathon this past 2016, uh, this past year, uh, Lindsay, uh, who was wearing the same singlet I was, was wearing an ITL blue singlet. Um, and one thing that she mentioned um, that I had kind of left out um, was the wall of sound. Now, she and I and several other people that were sort of in our small circle that were all going to be running the New York City Marathon together had shared a lot of articles um, and a lot of race reports and reviews and that sort of thing. And one thing that both she and I had read about was about the, the wall of sound, that supposedly you were going to turn into Manhattan off of the Queensboro Bridge where the race began, right there around 16 miles, and suddenly you were going to be hit by this massive wall of sound that was going to be deafening and unlike anything you'd ever experienced before. Well, Lindsay came off of the Queensboro Bridge and ran into what was supposed to be this deafening noise, and it was eerily silent. Literally, no one was speaking. It was just kind of quiet. Um, and the guy next to her kind of said something and waved his arms and, you know, come on, let's go, or something like that. And at that point, the crowd kind of erupted and started yelling. But, but she said it was a very unnerving experience for her because she had prepared herself, as you can imagine, for this deafening experience. And she literally had the opposite. It was, it was deathly quiet, despite the fact that there were lots of people there. I thought that was kind of interesting. The wall of silence, if you will. Um, and a lot of other people actually wrote to me as well and said, well, what about the finish? 
um, because they had read something about the finish. And I totally realized that I completely forgotten to talk about the finish. Um, I said that I crossed the finish line and that I was able to get on the the tail end there of of the the news coverage, of the sports coverage, but I didn't actually talk about what happened after the finish. Um, And that actually is worth mentioning. Um, So I crossed the finish line of the race. I'm given my medal. I take a couple of pictures, uh, all of which was great. I saw some people uh, that I knew uh, that were running around me and that finished kind of around me. I talked to them briefly. Um, I I talked to a couple of the people that I had been sort of in the same general vicinity with for a lot of the race, even though, as I said, I ran most of the race, unfortunately, solo. Um, And then I kind of started walking towards um, the bags and the ponchos and all that sort of thing. Now, the New York City Marathon, not only is it hard to get to the start, it's very hard to get out of the finish area. Um, And you essentially have two choices, and you have to make these choices in like August and September. Um, One is to get a post-race poncho, and the other is to check a bag, and you check a bag at the start and you pick it up at the finish. Now, it sounds like the bag would be better, but the bag is the infinitely worse option of the two. Um, either one of them, you have to walk a pretty good ways because you have to get out of the Central Park area. Uh, you have to walk several blocks in order to get to the exit of the park. But if you're going to get a bag, you have to walk about an additional mile um, farther than what you have to do to get uh, the, the, the ponchos. And so fortunately, I had been advised by that, um, by, by a veteran of the race. And so I opted for the poncho, which is actually a fairly nice, uh, fairly nice poncho, um, and, and was able to walk over and meet my family. Uh, for me, it was a long and very difficult walk. Um, because my quads were so seized up that I was really barely moving. People that had uh, that had, I had beaten in the race, that had finished behind me in the race, uh, were walking past me just in droves, and I was moving extremely slowly just because my, my legs were so tight. Um, and all the medical professionals uh, kept asking me, are you okay? Are you all right? And I'm like, I'm all right. Just have really, really tight quads and just can't really move all that well right now. Um, and person after person, do, do we need to get you a medic? Do you need an IV? No, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. I just am moving kind of slowly here. Uh, and so I moved very slowly. I eventually met my, my family a few blocks outside the park. Um, and, uh, and then we went and got some, some pizza with Mike Wardian, uh, which, was, which was pretty cool, uh, and got to talk about the race. So uh, the finish is an important thing to keep in mind. It's an important thing to include as part of a race report uh, for the New York City Marathon because, again, you want to opt for the poncho. Uh, you don't want to opt to walk the extra mile uh, in order to get your clothes out of the bag check there. Um, a couple other things that people ask me about. Uh, two specific things, both of which deserve a longer answer, um, and, and both of which I will probably perhaps provide a longer answer um, if more interest is demonstrated in them. Uh, but one of them was about Weight Watchers. Um, uh, a, a listener wrote to me and said, said, you know, how did you choose to do Weight Watchers? You're not exactly the, the image of what you think of with Weight Watchers. And that's a good point, and I appreciated that. Um, the, the short answer to that question is that, that uh, there were some people around me that had used it, and so I was familiar with it and, and thought it looked like a decent program. Um, but really, there were two big things that attracted me to it and then kept me going on it. Um, the first one is that Weight Watchers, central to the process is the one thing that has been shown in research study after research study to effectively help people manage their weight more than any other single factor, and that is writing down what it is that you eat. Um, From the time that I started doing Weight Watchers in June or July until the uh, New York City Marathon itself, 
I logged every single food that I ate, every single morsel that went into my mouth. I wrote it down. And it was easy because you got Weight Watchers has this app on your phone. And so I could just open it up and type in whatever it was and, and it would assign a point value for that. Um, and, and there I would have it logged. Um, if there was a food that I was getting out of, uh, out of a box, like a, like a cereal or something like that, it has a barcode scanner so you can, you can scan it. Um, and it really couldn't be easier uh, to log the food. And I knew that that was going to be uh, key to my being able to uh, stick with any sort of, of uh, plan. Um, and like I said, that's the one thing that's been shown, that regardless of the approach that you take, if you log your food, you will lose weight. Um, you will be better able to manage your weight because you know, for a variety of reasons, uh, not the least of which is that, that it shows you how much you're eating and it gets rid of all those kind of little extra bits along the way that you sort of pick up and mindlessly swallow. Um, the other thing about it that I liked is it was extremely flexible. Um, I, I have a fairly flexible life despite the fact that I try and inject routine onto it. My schedule is not the same every single day. I try to make my schedule the same week by week, but it's just not the same every single day. And so if I can use a tool, a dietary tool that is flexible, um, that's a good thing. Um, you can eat pretty much anything you want to eat on Weight Watchers as long as you log it. Um, but you have to know that if you, because of the way the points work with Weight Watchers, if you eat something that's very high points, like a piece of pizza or a cookie um, or something like that, um, then you're going to have to make up for that in some other place throughout the course of the day or throughout the course of the week. Um, and so it kind of holds you accountable that way. Um, but there's nothing that's off limits. There's no forbidden foods. Uh, you can pretty much eat whatever it is you want to eat as long as you're logging it and as long as you're balancing it back out with some other more helpful, high-quality foods. So those two things, the, the required logging and the ease of the logging um, and the flexibility of the program are the two things that drew me to it and that... that um, that, that kept me with it. Um, Weight Watchers, you might know, is kind of known for um, having a lot of support um, in like meetings and groups and all that sort of thing. Um, I think that's great. I think that's fantastic. I didn't take advantage of any of that because that just wasn't really necessary for me. Um, but you're not required to because, again, it's flexible. Um, it served the purpose that it needed to serve for me. Um, and ultimately, as I mentioned before, I got the leanest really that I've ever been in my entire life. Um, Another question that, again, I got that, that uh, deserves a much longer explanation um, is what a full training cycle looks like. I had mentioned that, that I had only about 10 weeks to really kind of build up and prepare myself for the marathon. Uh, and I was looking forward to this year, hopefully, having a full training cycle, um, a full, long, six-month buildup to the Chicago Marathon uh, to get me as ready for that race as I possibly can be. Well, somebody said, well, what's the difference between the 10-week abbreviated thing you did and the full training cycle that you did before? Um, now, I don't want to go too much into the, the principle of periodization, um, which is basically what that question is asking about, um, but I will say basically this. Uh, periodization is the process by which you train your body uh, to, to be ready to race by getting more and more and more like the race the closer you actually get to the race. Um, and so if you're going to be doing a long all-day race at a low intensity, then as you go along, as you get closer to that race, you're going to be doing more and more time at low intensity. You're going to be spending more and more uh, uh, time on your bike or on your feet or whatever it happens to be at a lower intensity. 
conversely, if you're getting ready for a short, fast, intense race, you will early in the training cycle start off with the longer, less intense stuff. And as you get closer to the race, you'll do the shorter, faster, more intense stuff. Um, that's kind of how periodization works. Um, and for me, I wasn't able to start six months out with short, fast, powerful running and then slowly over time get to less intense but longer efforts at close to um, my my threshold. Um, and and because of that, I was kind of working on all the different systems that you have to work on for running kind of all at the same time. A good full training cycle, you start off working on one system and then you work on the next one and then you work on the next one and then the last one that you work on is the one that you're going to need the most in the race that you're preparing for. Um, and I wasn't able to do that. Instead, I had to work on all the systems kind of all at the same time. Um, and, and that felt a little bit scattered. It felt a little bit all over the place. Whereas now, this year, in 2017, I can do short, fast, powerful running right now in February, getting ready for my race in October. And by the time that August and September rolls around, um, I'll be able to do the longer uh, less intense but still very difficult running uh, that more closely mimics the demands of a marathon. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, so far, 2017 is shaping up pretty well here, uh, but, uh, but, but we'll kind of see how it goes. Um, on this note, I was talking to some people today. Um, I went to the Mercedes Half Marathon and Marathon over in Birmingham today, and I was talking to some people about today's podcast that I was going to be recording, and, and they said, well, what's the, uh, what's the theme tonight? What's the story? And I said, well, if there was going to be one uniting thing, it would be the questions that people have asked me lately. Um, and, and starting off with, of course, the New York City Marathon questions. But really, there's two other questions that, that I've been asked over the course of the past few months that I wanted to talk a little bit about. Um, and I wanted to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about here in the podcast tonight. Um, one of them is a training question. Um, and the other one is a fan of endurance sports question. Um, so to start with the training question, um, whenever people ask me if there's something they can start doing, something easy, a very simple change they can make to, to improve their running, um, I tell them to start doing strides after their easy runs. Because um, that's something extremely simple to add in. And I say particularly after your long runs, you need to start doing strides. Now, if you don't know what strides are, strides are basically about 50 to 100 yard pickups where you run at about your mile pace, kind of a controlled sprint type feeling. Um, and you never quite get out of breath because it's not too far and it's not too, too hard. Um, but you stop when you get done. You take about a full minute to recover. You completely catch your breath. Uh, and then you turn around and you stride back. Um, and you can do about four to six of those at the end of an easy run, uh, particularly at the end of a long run. Uh, they can have a pretty profound impact on your ability to, to race efficiently and to race fast. And it's kind of interesting because we used to think runners have been doing strides for 50 years, 60 years. Um, we used to think as recently as like the 1980s that the reason why we did strides was because after we had trained our slow twitch muscles, we now need to train our fast twitch muscles by doing strides at the end. Um, 
And it turns out that's totally wrong. Um, that was based on a misunderstanding or a previous understanding of how fast twitch muscles and slow twitch muscles actually worked. And we have a better understanding of that now and know that that, that idea of, of you're training your slow twitch muscles by running long and then you do some strides at the end and that turns your fast twitch muscles, that's not really how it works. Rather, what we now understand, the reason why strides can have such a positive impact on your running when you do them after easy runs and particularly after long runs is because it helps hone the neuromuscular connections between your brain and your legs. Um, it teaches you what it feels like to run fast and run efficiently. Um, now, to demonstrate the, the importance of that, I want to point out a study that took place about 10 years ago at Eastern Michigan University in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Um, the researchers um, wanted to see how much randomness there was in the strides of runners as those runners got closer and closer and closer to exhaustion. And so what the researchers did, of course, is they, they put the runners on, on treadmills um, and they covered their legs and their feet in accelerometers and in different things that would measure the directions that their feet were moving and stuff. Um, and the hypothesis was that as people got more and more tired, as they got closer to the end of a race the more their stride would break down. Their stride would sort of fall apart and they'd become totally inefficient. And that would lead to, of course, the degradation of their speed and, and the end of their race. Um, and so they sought to prove that by putting people on treadmills, having them run to exhaustion, um, and then measuring the randomness in their stride as they got more and more tired. So again, the idea here is that they're, they're putting people out there and they figure that, that as a person gets tired and closer to exhaustion, their stride is going to fall apart and they're going to measure more randomness in their stride. They literally found the opposite. They found that as runners get more and more tired, their stride actually becomes more mechanistic. It becomes more robotic. The randomness in your stride fades as you get more and more tired, and your body essentially locks into a particular gait, into a particular stride. Now, perhaps you can see where I'm going with this, that what the reason why you do strides at the end of an easy run and particularly at the end of a long run is because you are training that default stride you're training your body to fall into that very efficient way of running at the time when you need that efficient way of running the most so if you don't do a lot of strides when your body falls into that mechanistic that robotic gait once you hit exhaustion, once you get really, really close to exhaustion, then um, it could be an inefficient stride. It won't be all over the place. It won't be random. It will be very repeatable. It will be very mechanistic, but it may be inefficient. If you do strides at the end of your easy runs, and particularly, again, at the end of your long runs, you will program your body, you will program your neural connections to run more efficiently when you're tired and when your body lapses into that very mechanistic way of running. Um, it's, I think, pretty fascinating research. Um, and, and to me, it just supports if there's one thing you need to be doing, if there's one thing that, that, that everybody should be doing at the end of their runs, uh, it's those strides. Now, I can appreciate, by the way, how difficult it is to motivate yourself at the end of a run to do a little bit more running. Um, but um, if there is something that you want to do to improve, you're serious about actually racing well and becoming more efficient and, and finishing races strongly, um, that's two minutes worth of work at the end of every run uh, that will make a profound difference. Um, the other question, the other thing that I was asked about as well, um, had to do with the best races of the year. 
Now, a listener, another uh, another athlete that I happen to coach, actually wrote to me and said, "What do you think the best races of the year of twenty uh, of twenty sixteen were of two thousand sixteen were?" And I I wasn't able to answer him immediately. <laughs> I had to think about it for a while, for several weeks, as a matter of fact, and really sort of reflect on, okay, what were the best races of the year? Um, and and I think um, as I thought about it, I started thinking about, okay, what makes for a good race? It's not just, of course, the drama of the race, even though that's huge, even though that's super important. It's not just the performance of the people that, that, that perform. That's huge too. But for me, I also feel like one thing that really makes it worthwhile, one thing that makes a race a great race is when you look at it and it has something meaningful and transcendent about it. In other words, there's almost like a lesson that you can learn from the race. Um, and, and I think that, that um, there are several examples of this throughout 2016, and I'll offer just a few of them. Um, the first one I'll mention is the one that I've already talked about a couple of times in the podcast this year, and so I won't go into it anymore, but it's, it's Carl Meltzer's fastest known time on the Appalachian Trail. I don't think that you can look back at any races in 2016 and say, wow, that was a great race without obviously including that 3,000-mile trek he took from uh, from Maine to Georgia uh, faster than anybody else ever has. Um, and there's so much we can take from that as far as getting outside of our comfort zone, as far as being tough, as far as overcoming obstacles that get, that, that, uh, get in our way, um, as far as... as, as uh, collaborating with our with our competitors uh, as far as is uh, remaining focused on a goal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, sticking with the ultra world, um, the athlete that wrote to me that asked about the best race of the year cited one of his thoughts for the best race of the year, and it was another ultra runner, and it was a guy named Ian Sharman. And I I'm inclined to agree with this. Ian Sharman, if you're familiar with him, is is also a very accomplished ultra runner, and he's a person inside the ultra community who. Uh, pays more attention to the science behind the training and physiology of ultra running uh, than a lot of ultra runners do. And I'm not going to bash ultra running, but but ultra running more than other sports is a little bit averse to um, to to science and numbers and that sort of thing. And it's part of the culture of the sport that they try and be a little bit more pure, if you will. Um, and and I can appreciate that. I totally get that. Uh, but Ian Sharman's a little bit different in that regard in that he actually does apply a lot of exercise physiological principles to running and racing uh, ultra-distance races. Um, but anyway, he uh, made headlines inside the ultra world uh, back in April around the Boston Marathon uh, because he started at the finish line of the Boston Marathon on the mor- morning of the marathon, early in the morning, and he ran to the starting line. And then he waited for the start and turned around and raced to the finish line. Uh, so in other words, that day he did essentially a double marathon. He did uh, 52 point, uh, or 50, yeah, 52.4 miles, took me a 52.4 miles, um, and the second half of it was in 2.48. Um, so the second half of it was at you know, 6.30 pace, essentially, um, on the, uh, the Boston course. And the Boston course has a pretty hefty sting in the tail. You know, it has some, some hard hills there in the latter part. And so while everybody else is struggling with Heartbreak Hill after having run uh, 20 miles, um, he was struggling with Heartbreak Hill after having run 46 miles. Um, so a pretty impressive run from him. Uh, he put it on Strava 
Um, and so people like me were able to go in and look at all the various splits. And one of the things that, that struck me about it, there were two things that struck me about it. One was just how you know, big things are really possible. Um, that, that, you know, it's such a cool idea uh, to actually do that. Um, but the other thing was that how slowly he ran some of those opening miles. He wasn't looking to run really fast for 52 miles. He was looking to run, do a 52-mile run with a fast second half. Um, and some of those opening miles were over nine minutes. Um, some of them were, were, were 840s. Um, and he was going downhill. Um, and then he turns around and runs 630 for the second half. Um, and I think that's really striking because some of us think that, oh, well, you know, if I want to average seven minutes per mile, that means I have to start at 650 and I can't go ever go over 710. I, I think it's very striking the range of paces that he ran inside a single run. He's doing miles over nine minutes and then finishing it under 630 pace. Um, and so so very, very kind of interesting, I thought, um, that race was, and obviously a very impressive race. Um the third race, there's four total. Third race that I thought was super impressive um, and, and really worth remembering and looking back some of the best races of the year is Matt Centrowitz's 1,500-meter win at the Olympics. Um, Matt Centrowitz Jr. Um, uh, was the first American winner of the 1,500 since 1908. Um, and he won it in 350 for a 1,500, uh, which is the slowest winning time since 1932. Um and that translates for a mile to about 406 or 407. And so for the most part, um, that's about what the state champion in a big state like Georgia or California or something like that runs for the mile uh, in high school. Um, <laughs> and he won the Olympic 1500 meter with that, that, that sort of effort. Um, so it's not a blazingly fast time. But the way the race unfolded was kind of incredible. Um, they went through the first lap in about 66 seconds. They went through the second lap in two minutes and 16 seconds. So the second lap was about 70 seconds. Um, and that's just not very fast. Um, and so they're, they're gearing up for this just blazing fast last 700 meters of the 1500. Um, sure enough, he's running in the front of the race. He runs 50.62 seconds for the last lap. Now, again, the first lap was 66. The second lap was 70, and he runs 50 for the last 400 meters. Um, and so that's that's a, there's a big a difference between running a 70 and a 50 for 400 as there is between Ian Sharman running 9-something and 6.30 for, for miles during that same double Boston Marathon. Um, that's a profound difference in speed. Um, that he was able to, to reproduce in, in that race. Um, and that's the reason why he won. Um, and the thing that I think we can take away from that by looking at it is that you train for the demands of your race, kind of going back to the periodization that I mentioned before. Um, two weeks out, he raced an 800-meter race, uh, and then his coach, Alberto Salazar, had him then do three more 800-meter repeats after the race was done. And so he drains himself by running this really, really hard two-lap 800-meter race, and then he goes out and runs three more blazing fast 800 meters on his own. Um, Alberto Salazar is kind of known for that. Um, and perhaps, not coincidentally, um, people like Mo Farah and, and Galen Rupp, who he also coaches, they also have very fast finishes at the, fa at the end of races. Um, the week before the race, one of his final tune-up workouts, he ran a series of 400-meter repeats, just one-lap repeats, um, and he ran the last one in 49 seconds. Um, so clearly, he had polished his wheels. He was ready to finish 
fast and because he knew that in championship races that's the way they tend to break down they tend to run pretty slowly for those first couple of laps and then they tend to blaze through the last lap as if they are sprinters doing a one lap race that's what he trained for and and that's exactly the way it unfolded and looking forward it doesn't matter that it's the slowest time since 1932 it doesn't matter uh that that the first lap is 66 and the second lap is 70 all that matters is that he's the gold medal winner um and he's part of a very elite um uh club um the final one that I wanted to mention as, as one of the great races, I think, of 2016 uh, was also from the Olympics, and it was the women's 10,000 meters. Um, now, to set this one up a little bit before I talk about why it's meaningful and, 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 and why it strikes me, um, there were basically three favorites that came into this race. There was a, a woman named uh, Turanesh Dababa who was from Ethiopia, Turanesh Dababa. She was the defending 2012 Olympic champion. Uh, you had Vivian Chiriot of Kenya, uh, and she was the 10,000-meter world champion in 2015, so the reigning 2,000-meter world champion. And then you had yet another person from Ethiopia, uh, Almaz Ayana, um, who had uh, the season-leading time of 30.07, um, and she was also the world record holder in the 5,000 meters, so half the distance. She'd run that only a couple of months before. So again, defending champion, world champion, reigning world champion, and world record at the 5,000-meter and fastest-leading time all together in one race. Um, they ran at about 10 o'clock in the morning. It was overcast and like 50 degrees, and so it was like ideal weather. There was totally calm wind. Um, and unlike most championship races, including that 1500 I was just talking about, they went out fast. They started fast. Um, there was a, a Kenyan woman named Alice Nawawuna um, who took the lead and basically set a world record pace uh, right from the very start. Um, she runs about the first two or three miles at a world record pace. It very quickly ends up uh, stringing out the pack. And then right there around halfway, Almaz Ayana, uh, the world record holder in the 5,000 meters, takes over um, and begins running away from the field. Um, she started running a little bit faster, not super-duper faster, but just a little bit faster, enough to kind of run away from the field. And by the time she crossed the finish line, she ends up running 2017, which knocked 14 seconds off the uh, the, the 22-year-old world record uh, of 1431 by a woman named Wang Jungsha. Um, uh, Chariot, Vivian Chariot, who was the reigning 10,000-meter world champion, finished second. She ran 29.32, so only one second outside of the old world record. Uh, the defending champion, Turanesh Dababa, she won the bronze in 29.42. She ran the fourth fastest time ever, and she won the bronze medal. Better yet, fourth place was Alice Nawawuna, the woman who had paced the first two miles at a world record pace and had basically set the stage for this profoundly fast race. She runs 29.53. It was the fifth fastest time ever run by a woman in the 10,000 meters, and she finished fourth place outside the medals. Nothing for her, even though she ran the fifth fastest time in, in world history. Um, there were eight different countries. Uh, Ethiopia, obviously. Uh, Kenya, the United States, Sweden, Burundi, Greece, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan uh, that all set national records on that day. In that one single race, they set national records. I mentioned the United States. Uh, that was Molly Huddle. She finished sixth in 3013, um, setting the American record. Um, there were something like 11 or 12 women in the race ran the fastest times they had ever run. Um, and you're not talking about people who, who you know, 
had never really run before. You're talking about huge established stars in, in, in the sport. You're talking about the world's best. And 11 of them out of like 18 or 19 end up running the fastest times they'd ever run. That's, that's incredible. Eight national records come out of this. Um, and four of, or, or four of the top five fastest times end up coming out of this one people race. Now, the reason why this is so striking is because it was the perfect race. Um, it was a, a huge stage. It was brilliant competitors who rose to the occasion and ran super fast. Um, it truly was the perfect race. Now, at the same time, you kind of have to wonder, or was it? Um, and, and another thing that we can kind of think about when we look at this race is to think about things that can potentially be too good to be true. And I think fans of endurance sports, be it the Tour de France or be it the Olympics or whatever it happens to be, we're kind of hardened against things that are too good to be true. And when we see a race like this, which is kind of the perfect race that that has these otherworldly performances, the first thing we think is, oh, they must have been on drugs. Oh, they must have all been on drugs. Wow, what a bunch of drug users in that race. And And personally, I can't quite get there. I'm not quite cynical enough to look at a brilliant race and say, wow, that race was too good. They must all be on drugs. I can't quite get there. But I do think that it highlights some of the difficulty of being a fan of endurance sports in 2017, that we can't just watch something brilliant and enjoy it and think, I just witnessed history being made in athletics. We have to watch it and wonder, well, is there an asterisk next to this? Have I just seen a huge fraud perpetrated on all the fans of the sport? Um, and that's frustrating, um, and I wish it wasn't that way, but that's kind of where we find ourselves. Kind of a downer note to end on there. <laughs> Perhaps I should have put that uh, somewhere earlier on. Let me remind you that Matt Sincherwich was the 1,500-meter winner, the first one from the United States uh, since 1908. Um, Ian Charman, that double Boston, brilliant, fantastic. That fastest known, nine from Car- known time from Carl Meltzer, uh, fantastic as well. Um, but also the women's 10,000-meter. Again, I can't quite get to the fact that it might be a dirty race. I think it was just the perfect race that unfolded in the perfect way with ideal conditions and some of the greatest competitors of all time. Um, And that's what I'm going to stick with for now, at least until I'm proven wrong, which hopefully won't be anytime soon. Thanks again for joining us, folks, on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast. You can follow us on our blog, mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com. Or by far the way that people interact with us the most is on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. You can drop us a message on there or just write on our Facebook wall. Uh, don't forget to check out the sponsor, ITL Coaching and Performance, itlcoaching.com. Uh, go on Twitter at ITL Coaching or on Facebook, facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. And of course, my other sponsor is my wife, the Travel Planner, facebook.com slash Casey Travel Planner, MEV. Um, or you can drop her a line at kctravelplanner at gmail.com. That's K-A-C-I-E, travelplanner at gmail.com. She just got back from an extensive training at Disney World. If you thought she could hook you up before, she can really hook you up now. So drop her a line. Thanks again for listening, folks, and we'll see you next time.